0: hey guys Montel here and thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel and I am so excited to have the guest on that I have on today uh is the guest who I think philosophically we probably are on the same page she's going to find that out by the time we get done our interview today but you know for the last year you have heard me rail about the fact that I think one of the most important components of this entire endeavor in the cannabis hemp business is something called education, 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 education. And I unfortunately think that, or I, I, I believe that unfortunately our business has done an incredible job when it comes to B2B education, business to business education, but we've done a really poor job when it comes to B2C, which is business to consumer and just education of the public in general about what it is we're trying to do. And, you know, one of the things in education is trying to find out a little bit about history. And a lot of times we overlook or ignore the history of hemp and cannabis in the United States and not just in the United States, but it's history in the world. And it needs to be recognized because how will we ever know where we're going or where we want to get to unless we take a look at where we've been and where we have some of the things that we learned in the past, we can learn from those mistakes. And we can also learn from what we learned in the past, of how we can move things forward right now. And, you know, my guest today, I think, is a guy who's spent a lot of time digging into the past, bringing it into today and make, making sure that people recognize that, you know, hemp is something that's been here and is going to be here to stay. And the more and more we know about it, the better off we're going to be. I don't know if a lot of you know this now, but Thomas Jefferson wrote, hemp is the health, wealth, and security of this country. During World War II, the U.S. Department of Agriculture had a hemp for victory campaign to encourage farmers to grow the plant. Yet, illogical fears about the danger of marijuana led to the passage of laws such as the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act and the Controlled Substance Act of 1970 that severely discouraged farmers from growing up. Well, my guest today is a seasoned real estate executive with a sharp eye for viable commercial and retail business ventures. When California decriminalized cannabis, business opportunities increased as prospective tenants took advantage of its new status, Researching the new industry, he was shocked to learn that hemp was classified as a Schedule One controlled substance at the time, despite the fact that it contains minimal amounts of the psychotropic cannabinoid in its in its structure and it cannot be used to get high. So he educated himself on industrial hemp, historical significance, its thousands of commercial uses, and the plant's potential to support or replace current diminishing resources included that hemp seemed far more impactful and sustainable from a business model and investment model in cannabis than cannabis. That set him on a mission to expose why industrial hemp had been criminalized for decades and to lift the illogical and arbitrary laws that left the United States with a $78 million hemp trade uh, deficit. He is the author of The Marijuana Hater's Guide to Making Billions of Dollars from Hemp, Mr. Matthew Harmon, thanks so much for joining us today on Let's Be Blunt with Montauk.
1: Thank you for having me, sir.
0: Absolutely, sir. Thank you for being here. Let's start a little bit by talking about your background, where you grew up, where you went to school, what your profession was before you got into it. Where are you from?
1: You know, Sacramento, California. Grew up in Northern California, Um, lived here most of my life, went to school in the Bay Area, came back and... Worked for a family business in uh, development and real estate construction, primarily in the senior care, and we ventured into everything from apartments to more recently um, alternative energy and a wind turbine farm.
0: Okay, and you had a pretty conservative uh, outlook on on cannabis when you were younger, I guess, right?
1: Very much so. When I when I grew up, you know, I it's that public service commercial. You know, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. When I when I heard that you know, I didn't want to have anything to do with drugs. And I thought, okay, well, this, this stuff kills you. Marijuana must kill you. You know, uh, it's ranked up there with heroin and cocaine. And so I said, I didn't want to have anything to do with this. was religious by nature, going to church, you know, and this was what was preached. I mean, you you know, drugs are bad. There's there are no real uses for them. And as I, as I continue, and this is the belief that I carried with me into my twenties, my early twenties, and then into business and all of these things. And you know, didn't have a part in as California began to decriminalize um, marijuana. I started wondering now why why are we making all this effort to decriminalize a plant that kills people? And so this is what I thought. And as I thought this, I said, you know, okay, well, I didn't understand it and I didn't give it a lot of thought. But then somebody told me that marijuana doesn't kill anybody. And when I heard this, I was just sort of like red flags, and I've got to do research. And I started on a path of researching this. I trusted this individual that he wasn't just trying to, you know, um, give me a story. So as I began to research um, marijuana, it led to hemp, which led to this history that this plant has that's unbelievable. I was just in shock. It just feels as I worked and continued to study, it felt like it was buried. This history was intentionally buried and for the last decade, I've just been researching this plant, um, traveling around the world just to sort of get a better perspective on the history of this plant and the opportunities that it can bring to us today.
0: Yeah, I mean, it it it, it is kind of almost mind-boggling when you start to dig in. I mean, I, I think I, like you, you know, I, I was a little different as when I was younger. I was a casual user, and I never really ever, ever, ever believed that Cannabis was something that could kill you. As a matter of fact, we know even to today that no one in the history of mankind has ever died from an overdose of cannabis. There has been one death that's been related to cannabis, but that was related to a mold, not to the cannabis itself. And that was related to a mold in a person who had a different form of a lung disease that we don't in science never even proved that it was the mold from the cannabis that ended up killing them. But okay. So now you can say in the history of mankind has been one person who's died from cannabis. Well, really? Uh, Okay. I'll buy that. If that's what you want to say, but the truth of the matter is it's never happened. And then when you start digging into the fact that this is something that's been around for at least 3000 years has been written up in every cornucopia and pharmacological document about medicine since man started keeping track, you start to recognize wait a minute, there's something here that we've not really known about. And then when you realize you go back and you look at, you know, the criminalization of cannabis in the United States, and you look back at the fact that, you know, back in the early 30s and the mid-30s, the two of the major sponsors of the funding for the criminalization of hemp and cannabis Were people who had their own ulterior motive when it comes to William Randolph Hearst and Charles DuPont, you know, looking at the fact that one wanted to destroy all the big trees in America, North America, and the other one, you know, was trying his damnedest to create something called textiles, which now we recognize how, you know, deleterious that's been to the planet since its its inception. And then you go back and you recognize that, wait a minute, I was taught that America was bought was built on the back of cotton and tobacco. No, America was built on the back of hemp. You know, all of our forefathers grew hemp from George Washington, Thomas Jefferson on down, the 13 original colonies. It was a requirement to grow hemp. We utilized hemp back then as a food source because people started recognize back in the late 1500s that hemp plant was one of the highest protein laden plants on the planet. You could eat it in a porridge and actually sustain yourself for those five or six days between going out and shooting a deer or going out and getting a buffalo. You know so. Hemp was something that literally was utilized when they, we started making, you know, people don't even recognize the fact that the entire Revolutionary Army was clothed in hemp fibers. George Washington's whole mason organization used hemp tents. You know, all of our sailing ships had hemp sails, had hemp rope. Hemp was what really made the world go round. And Absolutely. It took an act of one guy, you know, Anslinger, who was a supporter of cannabis during prohibition when he was out stumping against alcohol. We used to talk about the fact that he thought that marijuana was a better product for an occasional relief because it didn't make you as violent as alcohol. He was a proponent of cannabis and marijuana until he lost his job fighting against alcohol because alcohol was made legal. He needed something to fight against and got the backing and the funding from two guys who had ulterior motives. People need to understand. I mean, what the, Even the word canvas comes from cannabis. Mm-hmm. So this has been a part of, you know, what could have been uh, you, if you stop and think about where the world would be, had we not spent 70 years vilifying a plant where would the world be today? Where would we be when it comes to, you know, the carbon footprint left by the textiles and the oil industry in the world? Where would we be right now if we were, you know, really looking at, uh, you said that there are, what, well over 2,000 uses of the hemp plant? Is that what you think? Or what's in
1: no, no, there's there's tens, tens of thousands of uses for this plant. I mean, you you know, as you talk about this, it's just all these stories come through my mind. I mean hemp was a national security crop during the colonial period with Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. It was the number two commodity in shipbuilding after wood you know and the u s s constitution, which is the you know the oldest naval ship, has over sixty tons of hemp in the rigging, the rope, the sails um you know from the nets for fishing to the to the hammocks you know it's um It was the national security crop, which was why, you know, Queen Elizabeth required the colonies to grow it. Um, It was indispensable, you know, stories that, you know, the history of this plant is thousands and thousands of years old. And it's rich. And it's been at every single major turning point in human history. You know, in um, the Gutenberg, Johannes Gutenberg, when he was inventing the printing press, you know, the primary textiles of the day were hemp. And you know you didn't have a Walmart to run into to get a new pair of underwear or a new pair of socks or a new outfit, you'd have remnants. And there'd be clothing shops where you'd have these remnant clothing and he'd gather up these remnants, primarily hemp, and he would grind this hemp down and make paper. And 40 copies of the Gutenberg Bible are printed on hemp paper, paper made from hemp. Um, as you brought up uh, you know, the word canvas, which comes from cannabis, and you can go back even further to ancient Hebrew, which is a master language, which it's cannabisum, which is fragrant herb. You know, and even in the Bible, there's there is uh, when you entered the holy of holies, there were three um, three incense that were burnt. Correct. And, yeah, three incense that were burnt, and one of them was.
0: We used to stop. We stop on that one right there because I, I often say to people, if it was good enough for the baby Jesus, remember, you know, the three wise men came across carrying incense, frankincense, and myrrh. Well, you know, incense frankincense is a type of a cannabis plant. And why were they using that inside of little tents when a baby was born? Why? Because there was so much colic back in those days. And so... The hemp, the cannabis plant was a calming plant for babies. That's why the wise men thought it was a good idea to give them Mother Mary. So come on now. I mean, if it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Um, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, but, and, and, and not to say it as a joke, but the truth of the matter is, you know, we have utilized hemp and cannabis not only as a food, but as a medicinal agent, as a tincture. Throughout the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, it wasn't until 1937 that we decided to declare it, you know, outlaw. And then 1970, make it a schedule one drug. Come on. How stupid was that?
1: It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. You go back, you know, as you talk about this, um, you know, this war on drugs and in. As we try to, as most pharmaceuticals today are made synthetically, and then opioids, the opioids were made synthetically, they they had a lot of trouble making cannabis synthetically back in the day, and thus they couldn't sort of um, monetize it as easily as they were able to make opioids. That's one of, one of the things that Anslinger really capitalized was the synthesization of opioids, which they, you know, the pharmaceuticals of the day jumped on that bandwagon, but... Every drug that we use from, from you know, from, ty- not Tylenol, but the um, aspirin, which comes from tree bark, the right. opioids come from the opium poppy, and then cannabis that comes from, you know, cannabis. And so they're all natural. They're natural products. You know, and I see in the future, us moving back as we've, we've done with, you know, buy organic with our foods. We're going to want, you know, our pharmaceuticals to be organic. And that's possible, you know, and as, as they're sort of discovering that, you know, you can blend opioids and, you know, cannab- cannabinoids, um, you can have much more effective drugs, you know, and bring down the necessity to have such strong opioid drugs by mixing them with cannabinoids. So I see in the future us having just a phenomenal array of pain management uh, tools at our disposal through all of these things and and from cannabis as well. I mean it's the the number of cannabinoids that in this plant they're still discovering. And um and these cannabinoids aren't, you know, most of them, you know, are inherently just found in cannabis, but they're also finding cannabinoids in everything from bell peppers to right. hops. Yeah, exactly. Hops is the closest relative to cannabis right. botanically. So the history here is phenomenal. The opportunities are even more amazing. So as you, as we look to the future, I mean, to go back and say what the last eighty years—it's sort of a—it's a mixed bag. But I think right now we have an extraordinary opportunity to improve the planet, improve the improve the health and well-being of individuals across the planet with these uh, with cannabis, you know, and you know, reducing you know the carbon footprint of just about everything.
0: uh, you know let's let's talk a little bit about that i mean because again some of the 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 major different usages of cannabis and hemp you know hemp it can be created and can create a type of plastic that is way more biodegradable than the plastics that we get from petroleum-based products um we also see that you know you just nailed it when it comes to the cannabinoids themselves we are now beginning finally doctors are starting to teach in med schools the information about our own endocannabinoid system, the fact that we as mammals, all mammals on this planet, have this secondary kind of sympathetic nervous system that responds to and gets antagonized by plant-based cannabinoids to help keep our cells and our body operating as efficiently as they, they can. And we, we know that you know, it, it helps promote cellular homeostasis uh, because of the two and we're going to be figuring out that there's probably more than just two endocannabinoids. I think that's all they've discovered to date, but they have been looking very closely at that. And there may be at least three or four endocannabinoids that we have in our things, that endo being cannabinoids that we actually make ourselves. This doesn't come from... You know, consuming cannabis this is something that we make inside of our own body. One's called 2AG, the other one's called anandamide. And we're starting to recognize that anandamide deficiencies in people may be responsible for some of our, um, you know, disease states that we find ourselves in these days. And so, you know, we know that, you know, by reaching to the plant. We can antagonize that system in our bodies that will help us create them on our own. That's the reason why it works so well in human beings, but people won't even learn or don't even, you know, we, we have medical schools across this country that don't even teach this.
1: Yeah, the policies that are in place now, even after the Farm Bill in 2018, there's still, we have a lot of hurdles yet to get over. And, you know, to really bring this plant to the to fruition to where it needs to be, you know, part of our life the way it was, you know, a couple hundred years ago, where it was part of the the pharmacopoeia and it was part of the, you know, the industry that existed. I mean, it's, you know, in the book, Marijuana Haters Guide to Making billion a Billion Dollars for Hemp, I estimated in the next 50 years we'll be growing 100 million acres of hemp, you know, which can be used for medicinal purposes. Um, construction purposes, the number of uses are extraordinary.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think let's talk about a little bit about some of those uses because people don't recognize it. You know, there, there is a burgeoning very, very small. And, you know, it's really interesting that during, you know, the last administration it kind of slipped in under the radar. People didn't understand that, you know, as much noise was made about the relationship between the United States and China, The United States allowed China to ship into this country some equipment that only China builds. I don't understand why the United States, we don't build it here in the United States, but some equipment that allows for not only the development and creation of hemp bricks or hemp crete, but also hemp wood. You know, we can take that product once it's been processed and turn it into sheets of wood. Those sheets of wood can be used in construction. And one of the only machines in the planet that makes it is a Chinese-based machine that we've now shipped into Kentucky. Hmm, Kentucky. Why Kentucky? Oh, that's right. There's a guy by the name of Mitch McConnell from Kentucky who was a guy who pushed for the hemp bill to be passed to begin with. You know, has kind of secretly and secreted a deal between him and the president to allow that importation of that machine why aren't we building those machines here? Well,
1: a lot, a lot of those, I, I can't speak to that. I, I mean, there is a lot of opportunity that's happening. China is the largest producer of industrial hemp textiles. Um, they never stopped growing uh, cannabis for industrial uses. Of course, anything medical over there, I think, is prohibited, but they never stopped. And they're the world's largest grower of, of hemp. And they're also the primary producer of most of the textiles that exist uh, that we're using today. Um, we can make that equipment here and we can alter our systems. Hempcrete, we don't need a lot of uh, hempcrete naturally as a non-structural product that's sort of a lightweight concrete that's carbon negative, you know. So it's, it's grabbing carbon from the atmosphere. And it's also as it hardens uh, when it's placed with the, with the water, Lime and the wood shiv, the the woody core of the cannabis plant, the hemp, um, you know, forms this sort of lightweight, moldable concrete that can be used from everything from insulation to, um, you know, to wall, uh, and used in walls for insulation and things like that. So, and it, it can and, be and, when, and when I'm sorry, go ahead
0: and go back to that point that you were making before. When it's used as in in that kind of a building situation. While it's hardening, it's sequestering CO2. Yeah. So we could be having an amazing impact on global warming just by shifting over and starting to build all those secondary. Let's forget about using it in the housing market. If we used it just to build, you know, parking garages and stadiums, and we use it for all those kinds of structures. While it's hardening, it's sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere.
1: Well, it's a non-structural, hempcrete naturally is non-structural. I mean, there's ways of, of providing structure to it to where you can sort of uh, use it implementing. But from commercial applications, England uses a lot of hempcrete in some of their stuff and some of their commercial buildings is sort of the walls. They'll make the wall. So they'll they'll structurally put the wall up and they'll, they'll fill the wall in with hempcrete. You can do that as well as, and then you can plaster on the outside or on the inside of the wall. Um, that's just the hempcrete product. You can also take that same wood chip and compress it down and make make a fiber board, almost like a plywood, you know, that could be used for sheeting in houses. Now, the housing market is a, a phenomenal opportunity, especially now where I'm at in California, where we we can't even keep up with the demand for housing um, and, you know, in lumber and stuff like uh, that's sort of been very hard to get in some of these construction materials. Hemp offers enormous opportunities, as well as it it is a great um, offset for carbon. It just provides tremendous opportunity for these things. You know, if you look at a house, everything from your carpet, your drapes, your bedding, your couch, your couch, the entire ha- couch could be made from products uh, derived from hemp. You know, that it could be covered in a textile made from hemp. And the textiles, you know, the technology today that didn't exist, you know, when, you know, part of why I wrote this book was to bridge the past and the present and the future was... You know, when Eli Whitney invented that cotton gin in 1793, the the intent was is to to make this product that was very labor-intensive to bring that down. You know, when hemp was the primary thing, you had these crops that were massively labor-intensive, too expensive, they were uh, very expensive. Well, today, technologies allowed us to change the dynamics of how expensive these textiles are. And when the supply and the demand sort of kind of come together, we're going to have enormous opportunities. So you'll have couches that will be made entirely from hemp. You know, the wood boards can be constructed inside the couch from hemp. The fabric, the stuffing can even be made from hemp. You can have all these things. So an entire couch could be made from hemp. But a, doesn't it doesn't bother you,
0: though, in, in a way. I mean, what, what does the U.S. hemp industry compare to? How does that compare to other countries? I mean, because you know, you just said it, you know, in a future 10 years from now, you could you can imagine there would be you know, I don't know, 100 million acres of hemp being grown in the United States. But there are other countries that are already headed down that path. China's been in that path. Um, Colombia, uh, Argentina, Africa. There are four countries in Africa have now, you know, passed hemp growth bills or hemp bills that allow or legislation that allows uh, the African nations to grow hemp and and actually export it. Um, Are we getting ready to just legislate ourselves you know, to the you know, the butt end of the pig.
1: <laughs> well, we 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 seem to be moving, you know, two steps forward and one step back in some ways. You know, the farm bill was was a huge step uh in order to decriminalize hemp. We still have more legislation. This idea that this point three percent THC in hemp is a problem. We need to change the mindset on that because you know, I had when I when I didn't started doing my research about this. I really had to change my mindset, you know, from a religious and cultural perspective about what drugs were and were not and how they can be used. And, and you
0: it, also you also found out that this three percent number was just an arbitrary number that was picked. Nobody actually has done any research about that.
1: It's, yeah. It, yeah, it, it, it's, it's just the point three percent is an arbitrary number that was just picked. And then everybody ran with it because, you know, the, the, the stigma that's associated with this plant due to the history. I mean, if you go back to Anslinger, you know, it, I think what it was, I think of it is the biggest sabotage in human history, sabotaging the cannabis plant the way that they did. Um, but he was brilliant in one form and fashion for getting that done. Now, as we begin to unwind it, that's part of the reason I wrote this book, because I couldn't, it was difficult for me in the conservative environments that I'll end up interacting with, even in business and everything, where people didn't think I was just a pothead, if I would talk about it. So, I mean, I, you know, this book was sort of an opportunity to sort of, you know, outline the opportunities. I mean, we're talking about a national security crop and the United States is behind. We are behind but i i do believe we'll be leading the world with this plant i mean canada is doing everything they can you know to sort of outpace the rest of the world and they're doing a very good job but when you think about the climate around the world this plant grows almost anywhere it's
0: and the united states has areas like in kentucky and tennessee across that that uh, the minnesota area.
1: minnesota was a was a big grower uh, during World War II, Minnesota it was a big grower of industrial hemp for the war effort, for the hemp for victory campaign that you you yeah. mentioned earlier. And a lot of people
0: don't recognize. Again, I go back to Kentucky. Kentucky, you know, was one of the places during the you know early '80s and mid '80s where we you know the what was it called the the uh, cornbread mafia you know was considered one of the largest suppliers of of marijuana in the United States, a lot of people don't know that. So Kentucky, Tennessee, you know, Alabama, Georgia, across that that parallel, you know, uh, which goes and is is synonymous with, you know, the Golden Triangle, you know, that's an area in in the United States that could be one of the best providers of hemp.
1: Yeah, hemp can grow just about anywhere in the United States. I mean, it's it's primary fuel source is the sun. And that's Mm -hmm. what's so significant about it. It doesn't require nearly as much water as other crops. Like, for instance, corn. We grow 93 million acres of corn in this country. And, you know, most of it goes to animal feed. Um, And then there's so much excess and it's so subsidized in a way that it just sort of um, they're making ethanol and stuff. And we can make biofuels from hemp. Correct. For for airplanes, for cars. We can make
0: animal feed from hemp.
1: And we can make animal feed. Yes, absolutely. Animal bedding. You know, and and when I was in uh, Germany or it was actually uh, on the Netherlands, they they were regularly producing animal bedding made from hemp uh, for their cats, for their their bunnies, uh, even for the horses. So um, the opportunity there is spectacular.
0: Well, you said that in order to stimulate the market and finally throw off the stigma of unfairly attached to hemp numerous federal departments must ultimately step in and provide funding and new levels of allocation for hemp crops. And that, and doing so is a matter of our national security for our future. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Well, we need, you know, uh, agriculturally, we need to, we provide, the government provides subsidies for stability, for national security. Um, so economically, you know, we can't, you know, with force majeure, we can't control the weather. And thus, when we can't control the weather, we're going to have ups and downs with our crops and yields, depending on where they're grown or not grown. So the cover the government keeps reserves of, of farmland, and then they also provide subsidies so that so that we don't have any major dips uh, in our food supply. In our and and uh, it's critical that hemp gets into these programs from um, federal subsidies, federal grants to insurance. Being able to get crop insurance, and I think crop insurance is definitely something that's, um, you know, it's on the table now. And I think you can get crop insurance. And so that's available. But the subsidies and, you know, the government investing in this plant and in the um, research of it, you know, from medical to industrial is really critical. If they're investing in alternative energy, they need to be investing in hemp.
0: You know, one of the board members that sits on my cannabis company is uh, the former head of the CIA, uh, Jim Woolsey. And um, he is was part of the National Hemp, I guess, the, the head of the National Hemp Council for years. And, you know, Jim has been kind of like preaching to the choir, trying to get our members of Congress up to speed on hemp and as an agricultural crop and its importance in the United States. Do you think our members of Congress are as open to this as they should be? And what do we have to do to get them more open?
1: Yeah, they need to understand. they need to understand. I mean i'm working on on a plan to try to send one of my books out to every congressman that's out there. They need to know what this plant's capable of, you know, and that it, these stigmas that anchor it are not factual, and we need to begin looking past this and it's not just Congress. Congress needs to see it, but I 'll give you an example. Um, You know, as we legalize cannabis, we still have within other jurisdictions, for instance, some states, there's a few states out there that haven't decriminalized hemp or cannabis in any form or fashion. Then we've got counties that sort of they'll go, you know, they'll ebb and flow with, Okay, you can do this and you can't do this. And so you know. Well, more-
0: well, you know, I think one of the points you're making is we legalize cannabis in California as a recreational drug, but there's still more nonviolent cannabis arrests going on in California than there are in the majority of the states in this country.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it is. It's I mean, the laws and the and the policies and everything and the stigma. The stigma still anchors this plant, and so we've got to get over that stigma. And that's sort of it, you know, and I know for myself, I had to get over it. Um, I was, you know, that because I grew up with it, believing there was this, that it was this demon weed, you know, and it was the, you know, public enemy number one. Devil salad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's, it goes on and on and on. And it's like, You know, it's, you know, you watch the old reefer madness, it causes errors in time and space. I mean, it's just, (laughs) it's just, it's, it's wild, but we have to get past any, the, you know, culturally we've been anchored with these stigmas and we've got to get past them. And I think just through your, this podcast and the work that you're doing along with, um, as well as all the other people that are in the trenches, just sort of attacking this plan, attacking the stigma and really educating people is invaluable. I mean, thank you for all that you're doing because this this is immensely important. Absolutely. So talk about your
0: years of research leading up to writing your book, The Marijuana Haters Guide to Making
1: a Billion Dollars from Hemp. And I should say, is that available on Amazon? It's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You can get it just about anywhere. There's an audio book as well that I read. So I was, that for me was a hurdle. I mean, it was exciting to be able to go through, read the book and, uh, and, and produce that and get that out. It was exciting. Um, yeah, so the book is available. Um, I'm sorry, your question, what was that question again on that? Well, no, the, no, well, well years talking talking years, the years of history.
0: The years of research that you did leading up to writing the book.
1: Yeah, I was susceptible to the stigma. So I didn't think there was any value in this plant. It pretty much, you know, it killed people so we don't need it. And then as I began to research and and discover that there's this history and how rich this history was, I mean, it, and it goes back thousands of years from it being used for food and paper to the, you know, discourse he's using it in this, you know, mentioning it in his pharmacopoeia manual. Um, the history is just is unbelievable and how rich it is and how this plant was a part of just about every turning point in human history so i spent when i started this you know i jumped on you know today fortunately we have google we have the internet and we're able to dive in and begin researching and i just started reading and researching day after day and this was a passion as i learned more i wanted to know more And I ran into roadblocks along the way because the stigma, the information was so buried. I bought just about every book I can find on the subject matter. Um, Your mind must have been completely blown when you found out that the
0: U.S. government owns a patent on certain cannabinoids. You know, what it? Patent number uh, 6630507. You know, the U.S. government owns that patent on cannabinoids. I mean, and we did that back in 2002, wrote, up, wrote it up in 1998. And when you look into to start digging into so many information about that, you start to recognize that the U.S. government literally was funding research in Israel throughout all of the 1990s. And we spent probably 50 to 100 million dollars worth of taxpayer dollars on programs and research outside of the United States and not inside the United States. Your mind must have been blown when you heard about that.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, that that that's just one of the things, not to mention that the the United States government was the biggest grower of marijuana, you know, previous and then before the 90s, before it, it, you know, began its decriminalization process. It was the biggest grower. I'm just like, what is this? This doesn't make any sense. How can it how can it say this and do that? This, so these red flags continued. And as, as we sort of w- what I try to say today is everybody that was responsible for the ultimate criminalization of this plant, they're all dead. Anslinger's dead, you know, and, and you know, his boss, um, Andrew Mellon. Andrew Andrew Mellon was the Treasury Secretary also owned Gulf Oil as I get into the book and the number of conspiracy theories that surround this plant, you know, I found the most interesting one is, is Andrew Mellon's relationship to, to petroleum, and how petroleum and how hemp, how much hemp as it was making its resurgence, from you know, that, you know, that resurgence that popular mechanics article, you know, the next billion dollar crop, um, how, how it was the biggest competitor to the petroleum industry.
0: It was such a huge threat. People didn't want to have anything to do with it. They, they needed to go in and try their best to dig this crap up out of the ground when they realized that there was something growing on the ground that would be just as efficacious.
1: Yeah, it, it's in the history is just phenomenal. So all of these things and the stories and the history and how it, was, how it played a role, it's played a role in human history from medicine um, to technology. And and will play in in the future a role in technology because they're now, you can make batteries from hemp.
0: I know people. I, I've I've been been absolutely blowing people's minds when I talk about the fact that you know the cellulose material in hemp is more electrically conductive than graphite. So they are making batteries now. There's two publicly traded companies I think on the Nasdaq right now that are creating hemp batteries. Right.
1: Yeah, yeah. I know of one for sure that's out there doing it. And so and I, I wouldn't be surprised that there's others. I mean, when you think about Elon Musk and Tesla and the opportunities that exist with this, they're enormous. They're enormous. And this plant provides just an extreme amount of opportunities right now, as we sort of move into the future, we've got to get over these regulatory and policy hurdles, you know, from our local cities and counties, state, even the state governments educating our politicians. I mean, I would encourage everybody to talk to their politicians, write their politician, you know, from, from their city council up to their, their state government and the federal government, their congressmen. Um, You know, there's a lot of talk on, oh, we're going to decriminalize marijuana. We're going to do this and not enough action. Oh, let me just say,
0: I think that, you know, uh, that's one of those hoodwinking things that just happened during this last election, you know, when it was when it was vogue and appropriate for both the vice president and the president who are currently in office right now to during their campaign recognize that, hmm, if I try to talk a little bit more about cannabis I can probably bring a little, couple more voters to the table. They talked all the smack they could, but now that they've been there, I remember that there was a statement being made that there was going to be something done about hemp cannabis in the first hundred days. Those first hundred days have come and gone. And we still hear this current president talk smack about the fact that he thinks that cannabis is still a gateway drug. Come on, man. I mean, what yeah. is it gonna take for what's it gonna take for us to get them to get off of their, you know, high horse and get down to talking about making some legislative changes when it comes to hemp and cannabis in the United States.
1: The power is in their hands and they're, and they're not using it. And the reasons why I don't know, but we need to put pressure on them to do something because we need to change these laws and it's important.
0: Maybe some of the reasons why they don't know is because they don't know all the usages that, you know, uh, let's talk a little bit more about some of the other uses of hemp that folks may not be aware of. Maybe that'll get people excited enough to say, I need to write my congressman. What are some of the other uses that, you know, you talk about?
1: Well, I get into a lot of uses inside the book biofuels and electricity, you know, making electricity from hemp. I, I think this is a big one. Right now, uh coal-powered petroleum-powered fossil fuel-powered electricity in the united states accounts for about 40 percent of the electricity that's created in the united states if we're growing industrial hemp on scale you know 100 million acres of it that's just a tremendous amount of tonnage of uh the hemp herd that comes from the plant that could be used um is a biomass material in biomass electricity generating facilities all around the united states you know so as is, in is, hemp won't be grown in just one spot it can be grown in just in all 50 states and so Electricity and making electricity from industrial hemp, I think, is a huge opportunity that's not being talked about. Biomass electricity accounts for about 4% of the energy production in the United States. And that typically comes from um, sawdust, you know, trees, lumber mills, these places where they're actually taking the sawdust on site and they'll typically have a cogeneration plant within those facilities, you know, and really trying to create a circular economy uh, you know, from our food supply to our electricity supply with industrial hemp. So I think, uh, that's a huge opportunity. The other one is biofuels. The seed, the hemp seed is a, it's a very fatty seed and very fatty, very oily,
0: high in protein seed. Yep. And a seed that, that the seed itself in the seed form doesn't contain the cannabinoids in it. They have not grown, they have not, you know, uh, uh developed into the the plant yet you have to yes, grow it it's
1: non psychoactive yeah and it's right. it's healthy one of the most nutritious seeds for the human body. But with 100 million acres, we won't probably be eating that much hemp seed. You know, we could be using it for animals, animal seed. Um, we could be using it for cattle feed. A number of opportunities that exist like that, animal feed. Just, we talk about Kobe beef, but imagine a cow that, that dined on hemp seeds for a primary portion of its diet. Getting, I mean, I, kind of would getting a lot of, uh, you know, omega-6, omega-3, fatty acids, go right ahead. Yeah, and you'd have your omegas right inside your steak. Um, the other one is it could be pressed and made into biofuels. Now, I know in the United States, we're using um, a lot of gasoline, which is a petroleum product. But what's also lost in translation is there is 98% of the fuel used in trade is diesel fuel. Now, there's a, there's a history here to diesel fuel. Rudolf Diesel invented the diesel, the diesel engine. To run off of grown fuels, and hemp was one of those grown fuels. Not every country in the, in the world was blessed with having an abundance of fossil fuels you know at the turn of the century. So you know when they're striving and looking to be energy independent back in the day when when that was critical to their national security, uh, Rudolf Diesel. Uh, invented the diesel engine to run off of, of growing fuels, things like peanuts, you know, uh, the auto company at the world's fair invented, you know, ran a diesel engine off of peanut oil. Um, and hemp was one of those products that was anticipated to be used in his diesel engine. Now diesel mysteriously, just, just before world war one um, disappeared going from the Netherlands to England So, I mean, there's, you know, you sort of wonder and speculate and as I I sort of try to dig in to understand that there's just, it's a phenomenal story. He was a phenomenal individual, but 98% of world trade happens with a diesel engine. These diesel engines are the size of of buildings, you know, produce 100,000 horsepower to move. So trade's not going away anytime soon, but we also need alternatives to diesel fuel, which can be done, can be growing.
0: Correct. Correct. Well, it's crazy. It's phenomenal. If somebody wanted to get more information from you, so where, where's your website? Where did it go?
1: Hempguide.com, www.hempguide.com.
0: And, um, you know, I, I, I want to let you know I'm, I'm almost out of time right now, but I would love to have you back anytime you want to come back. We can kick it and chop it up because I think that, you know, the more and more and more we educate the masses and make them understand that we are letting something slip right through our fingers that could change the economy of America over the course of the next 10 years and put us back into that America's first position. It could be our development of not just hemp, but all of the ancillary verticals that go along with it.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a national security crop, and we need to treat it like that.
0: And we definitely do. Well, sir, I can't thank you enough, Mr. Harmon, for being here and being a part of Let's Montel. Again, you have a home here wherever you want. Come on back. And one more time with that website, if people wanted to find out more about you and
1: about the information you have. Yeah, www.hempguide.com
0: www.hempguide.com. Well, thank you all so much for tuning in to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thank you, Matthew, for being here. And again, you got a home here wherever
1: you want. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much.
0: Certainly, absolutely. Tune into the next Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments.
1: (laughs) BANG <laughs>